Hey guys, good afternoon. Uh, Mr. Welta here uh, to talk to you a little bit about the content from the American Yacht Volume 2, right? It's post-1877. In particular, Chapter 16, Capital and Labor, just to highlight some of the kind of the main points and hopefully uh, better prepare you for the quiz. Because there is some overlap with our content, but the, uh, you know, sometimes this stuff is a little bit scattered, right, uh, regarding my lecture and its alignment with the Yacht here. So I apologize for that, but hopefully this helps you out a little bit. Of course, you still have all your readings, all the slides available to you via Canvas. If you need any assistance navigating that stuff, please uh, reach out. And it's no problem. I'm here to help. All right, guys. So for uh, capital and labor, the focus here is on the kind of incredible growth, right, uh, coming about in the late 1800s and the expansion of businesses and the cost of it, right? Like, you know, the big things going on here is all these, you know, all these great conditions, right? The raw resources from the West, the abundance of immigrant labor from especially Europe and many other places, um, the role of politics, right, and the government in also easing corporations and being very pro-business has a cost to it in the form of a lot of labor unrest and really rough situations for workers. So that's kind of the core sort of the theme of the chapter. Uh, so some of the key things they kind of begin with, right, is the great labor strike, sorry, the great railroad strike of 1877. How, you know, for about six weeks, right, a lot of the uh, railroads in the country came to a standstill, enough so that eventually state militias were called out in many areas. Uh, you know, the, the federal troops were called in to kind of restore peace and transition those things. And this is pretty, you know, much par for the course when it comes to this, and we'll see this in this class throughout of the government, you know, the idea being like something like the railroad, right, so key to the function of daily life, to the economy, that you cannot afford to have, you know, workers strike at such a level where the, you know, the country cannot conduct business as usual and things like that. So the Great Railroad Strike, uh, again, some of the death and destruction from it, you know, it's, it's a good kind of uh, example of what's going to be pretty common here in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s regarding labor and, uh, you know, those uh, leaders of capital, right? Those robber barons or those owners of the industries. Uh, some other things we see is a focus on what's called Taylorism, uh, sometimes economies of scale. Uh, sometimes also these are called time management studies. So these are based on the views of a kind of scientist, business, uh, you know, expert of the time named Frederick Taylor, who basically made a big point to kind of write and work uh, with businesses in regards to efficiency. You know, his view when looking at any business, the whole goal is efficiency, right? Is it worth it? Is it cost effective? So he'll do all sorts of stuff from like time studies, like literally, you know, timing workers, how long it takes them to do this, to do that. And this is going to promote a lot more of mass production and stuff. You know, a quick example would be in the past, right? You might have a watchmaker, you know, working on one watch for several weeks or a few watches for several weeks. You know, now with these economies of scale and mass production and with Taylorism, you know, the idea is why not get a few people to do one specific task do it really fast, really efficiently, and then that'll help break up the work, right, in scale. So you can think about later on the impact that has on, you know, the development of the car, all that. But the idea is to, you know, pay as little wages as possible, be as efficient as possible with the work, and produce as many as you can. That's right? what it's all about. So that's the role of kind of Taylorism and those uh, time management studies and some of those. Again, the corporation, this is kind of the uh, sort of modern entity of a company, right? Uh, you know, it's uh, sort of like licensed or registered to operate. Uh, the Great Merger Movement refers to kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, when a lot of wealth and a lot of companies basically consolidate. 
meaning, you know, again, basically oil companies, right, will be kind of eaten up or taken over by a lot of them by Standard Oil. Steel companies, right, kind of um, swamped up and swallowed whole by U.S. steel. So this is, you know, basically the consolidation of a lot of that power, right? Railroad companies where there used to be maybe dozens and dozens and dozens. Now there's, you know, uh, only uh, some, right? Or there's a much lower number, but they're that much more powerful because of all these mergers and stuff. Uh, the robber barons, right, are captains of industry. These are, you know, the people like Carnegie, like Rockefeller. These are those great owners of these vastly and incredibly powerful companies that are, you know, dictating and a lot of ways kind of the leader in the late 1800s, right? Amassing a lot of wealth, getting government aid, hiring a lot of workers, right? Um, and in some cases, you know, uh, having issues with strikes, with low pay, with wages, all those things. Uh, but these are robber barons, again, those leaders of industry of the late 1800s, such as Carnegie, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, many, many others. Uh, social Darwinism refers to a kind of popular social theory of that time period. Uh, people always want to relate it to uh, Charles Darwin. But the guy who's kind of seen as being the big kind of proponent of it, the one who's pushing it out there, is a, an Englishman named Herbert Spencer. So basically, you know, the Darwin stuff of evolution and survival of the fittest is basically what social Darwinism is, but it, it's that applied to society. You know, for a long time, and social scientists have always been gripping with this, right, of how do you explain wealth? How do you explain success? How do you explain social class, right? Rich, poor, everything in between. Well, what social Darwinism does is basically say that, you know, the wealthiest are the fittest, right? Those who survive, thrive, succeed, prosper, do so because they are, you know, adapting faster than others. Those who do not eventually will, you know, become extinct, right? Or their numbers will dwindle. So this was extremely popular, especially with the upper classes in the, you know, in the U.S. with business interests. And it's also a very, you know, specific way to look at that, right? Uh, to look at society in general. But again, that's social Darwinism, sort of survival is the fittest, putting social, putting Darwinistic ideas and applying it to society, right? For social class and things like that. Uh, industrial working conditions in general. Uh, so again, if you read through the chapter, right, or take a look at it, again, long hours, low pay, um, not much in the form of compensation. If you're injured on the job, you know, you could be let go. Your wages could be reduced with very little notice or very uh, short notice. All these are some of the key issues that are, you know, starting to going to start to unite a lot of industrial workers and realize that, you know, these things are not um, are things that need to be addressed, right? Limits to the workday, all those things. So industrial conditions, late 1800s, safety, all those issues, not very good at all. Uh, unionization is, of course, the process of kind of organizing, right, by workers. So we have some early examples of that with the Knights of Labor. Uh, go back and check on this, but I think they date back to the early 1870s, if I'm not mistaken, under a guy named uh, Powderly, Terrence Powderly. Uh, so the Knights of Labor are an interesting group in that, you know, they're open to a lot of uh, unskilled workers. They have a pretty popular membership, but they get involved in a situation in the late 1880s called the Haymarket Affair, sometimes known as the Haymarket Riot. And at this riot, um, initially what was supposed to be a demonstration to some stuff and some wages that had been cut, some things that had been done, uh, done outside of Chicago, you know, in this uh, Haymarket Square area, there's a clash between these laborers who are protesting and police in which uh, people are killed. So the fallout from that, especially in the media, puts a lot of blame on the uh, organized labor, the Knights of Labor in particular. So for those reasons, this once very popular uh, labor group is going to kind of get diminished as far as their power and stuff. Excuse me. 
Uh, one that will rise in their place is called the American Federation of Labor, um, led by a gentleman named Samuel Gompers, who'd be a big player in the, in the American labor movement for a long time. So the AFL, or American Federation, Federation of Labor, is still around today. A little bit more conservative. It was known to have some what of a kind of closed-off membership with only uh, skilled laborers and also having some issues with uh, not allowing women uh, for some time as well. But uh, you know, the idea was kind of strength in unity and strength in you know only being able to be a skilled worker gave some some a little bit more uh, how do we say specific direction for the movement itself. And you know its goal wasn't necessarily to totally revolutionize the whole labor system, but incremental stuff, right? Improve work hours, a little bit more pay, more benefits. That was kind of the goal with the AFL or American Federation of Labor. Uh, again, a few more strikes. The Homestead strike uh, at a uh, Carnegie plant uh, that's put down extremely violently. A Pullman strike in the railroad industry, again, in the later 1800s. You can kind of see the sort of model here. And then the final kind of section of the chapter focuses on the rise of some third parties in U.S. politics. So I don't want I'm not going to get into a ton of detail, but at least kind of glance over some of the key things. We have, again, the Farmers Alliance uh, and then the, the emergence of the People's Party. Think of the Farmers Alliance as kind of a continuation of the Grange and some of those things that we talked about that unite a lot of farmers, right? The price of their crops, their view of the railroads, uh, those things. So what starts to happen, especially in the early 1890s, is a, a platform starts to develop um, you know, to uh, support this group or to kind of guide this group a little bit. And that platform you know, included things like uh, specific... Uh, you know, work days, uh, limits to, you know, uh, kind of government power, like more, uh, you know, how do we say, more democracy in the, uh, you know, kind of electoral process, uh, all that stuff. And this will be big. Uh, you know, to give you an example, some of the movements will uh, gonna iterate and have a long-lasting effect on politics for years to come. So the populace again start out as a uh, you know a group of farmers and then eventually merge into a major major third party. So some of the issues like issues with the currency, a lot in the later chapter deals with this view about gold and silver. You know, to put it in a nutshell, basically they what they used to do is only print the amount of money and have that in reserve in gold. So a lot of people believed in an effort to make more you know activity or to increase business, you could mint silver as well. And that became a big kind of rallying cry for the populace and for uh, some of their key beliefs. Uh, the the key thing uh, uh, for these groups is, you know, they eventually both the socialists and the populists end up running presidential candidates, and they both are eventually able to get one million votes. But the key thing with the populists and why we kind of hold them in higher regard, or at least look at them a little bit closer, is uh, their views on what eventually become amendments. We'll talk about these down the road. But that is the direct election of senators. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down, but before the senators were actually chosen kind of like through an electoral, electoral college sort of system, like representatives chose them, uh, not the people themselves. This will change later on. Uh, the secret ballot, kind of more secure elections also, something that the populace fought for pretty strongly. Uh, a graduated income tax. This one's huge and, of course, will become law, is the law of the land today. So that gives you just kind of an inkling of the effect of the populist. And what goes on with them is amazing because they, again, they run a guy named Weaver for president in 1892. And he's the first ever third party member to get 1 million votes. But if you fast forward just a few years later, uh, 1896, uh, they basically, 
the populists get folded into the Democratic Party. So their issues become key and part of the big, you know, the big party's kind of political discourse or, or views and stuff. So extremely, extremely impactful. Uh, good, I think that covers most of it. Again, for your quiz, just keep a, a track of some of those things, uh, right? Uh, most of the questions are pretty basic, but I think uh, you'll be fine, of course, if you look over your sources, all those things. And as always, I'm here if you have any questions or anything. Have a great day. Thank you for your time. Take care.